Hey guys, welcome back to the OPD podcast. It's just myself, Joe Jeffrey, and my co-host Austin Stout on today. Austin has just finished up training some legs and he has a mystery podcast topic for me. So uh, it's a good mate for an interesting one. Um, so let's just rip into it, Austin. What's your topic? What do you want to chat about? Yeah, okay. So this was um, this was a request from somebody. I thought it was a good pretty good request. So uh, they wanted to know what variables we're looking at when we build a training program. So whether it's the typical things like volume, um, intensity, and then also like environmental factors, you know, things like somebody's schedule or their recovery capacity or equipment availability or just stuff like that. They wanted to kind of know what our our mindset is and some of the things we look at or issues that we run into when we build programs. Okay, cool. It was a good, was a good topic. Um, it's a big topic, man. I don't know how we're going to get through that. <laughs> well, yeah, I think, I think maybe covering some of the common things that we run into that probably aren't considered. Cause I think there's some things that at least, at least like when I get a client that they come from, maybe they got a program online or they, they maybe had worked with someone else before, or whatever it is, it seems to me that a lot of the environmental factors aren't really considered. You know, like there's no, there's no real consideration to their, um, like their schedule or their recovery ability. And I feel like a lot of the time people will get, I, I don't even want to say cookie cutter program, but that's kind of what it is because it's just not, it's just not realistic to them. So I'll give you a perfect example. Um, like somebody's recovery ability is going to be going to be impacted a lot by, by what they do for a living, what their work environment is mm-hmm. and like what kind of hours they work and what, you know, what their sleep schedule is and stuff. And somebody that works like a, a laborish job um, all day long and is exhausted, um, you know, or has a very stressful home life or even has like a stressful, maybe a business owner or maybe like a CEO of the company or something, anyone that's in a high stress environment, realistically, their recovery ability is probably not going to be as good as somebody else that has a more sedentary lifestyle or a very low stress lifestyle. Mm-hmm. You know, So that, I mean, that's, and I feel like something like that is probably not considered enough when looking at, building an actual training program yeah totally and anybody listening i guess the way that i like to do that as a coach and i imagine you're quite the same austin is generally in my first phase or first mesocycle of training that i program for a client it's not necessarily going to be aimed at nailing physique goals at maximum capacity from the get-go it's going to more so be about collecting (coughs) excuse me objective and non-objective data on their recovery, stress management, sleep, uh, expenditure, um, as you say, just all the nature of recoverability um, from every angle. And then we could possibly potentiate training variables up as according to that. So it's more so just tentatively monitoring nervous system capabilities rather than going in at the deep end with X amount of volume per week or X amount of, even when it comes to progressive overload type schemes, I may say, I don't want you to progressively overload over this mesocycle at all. I just want 
to see what your nervous system can do with this or with this, you know? Um, so I guess for anybody listening, that's the way you would do it. Instead of just pushing from the get go, you would monitor things like your your non-exercise activated activity thermogenesis. Sorry guys. It's really late where I am. <laughs> so, um, uh, my brain isn't quite working anymore. Uh, uh, your heart rate variability, your general biofeedback, how you feel, your resting heart rate, is your blood glucose kicking up as a stress response? Are you holding uh, lots more inflammation than usual that you can't seem to recover from? Are your loads dropping off in the gym or your pumps dropping off in the gym? Are you not able to execute and, and ma maintain a, a proper neurological connection for a set? And if, if so, then you know, you're working beyond your nervous system capabilities. Well, I guess that's where you're coming from there. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> that's exactly, that's exactly what I'm alluding to. I mean, and you're not gonna, we can get a pretty good, pretty good idea of it by asking some basic questions in a consultation, you know, but we're not going to really have a full um, grasp on it until we start working with somebody. And, and it's not just, it's not just our, uh, you know, what we do on our end, it's also getting good biofeedback from the client, you know, so the problem with training too, is that too many people equate exhaustion with productivity mm. within a training session when, yeah, don't get me wrong. Like I, if you blast yourself in a good training session, yeah, you're going to be tired. It's going to, there's going to be an exhaustion component, but I, I mean, I can make anyone tired in mm. a training session. It's not hard. I can make anyone out of breath. Like I can make anyone feel like the training session is difficult, but does that mean that it's productive? Not necessarily. You know, so yeah, you have to, and I think that's, that's a really bad rut, a really bad kind of uh, uh, thing that people fall into a lot is that, especially when you get training programs online or, or get these pre-made programs or, or even worse, I see this in, in gyms all the time when somebody trains with the trainer in the gym, the trainer makes them tired, right? They walk out of the gym and they're exhausted. I mean, it doesn't, that's, that's great. I mean, I can just run someone in, in circuits and giant sets for 45 minutes and they're going to be tired. Yeah. It's not, you know, it's not that hard, but, but again, it's not productive. So I like what you said in terms of, uh, in terms of trying to establish some kind of baseline in that first phase. And I typically, like I said, I, I typically have some general idea, but I'm, I'm probably going to undershoot a little bit on that first phase on what I think they can handle. I'm probably going to give them a little bit less. Yes, I absolutely do that. And if I can quickly interject, I don't know if this is where you're going. Um, I find, um, and any of my clients listening to this, believe me, you know this, um, I have a big focus on uh, movement, execution and accuracy via um, part of my non-negotiable check-in process is that you include some some training footage for me to analyze and get back to and once we have specifically nailed down the execution there is not a single client that i've worked with to this day that can handle as much volume as they initially thought that they could um before addressing that issue so let's say we went in with eight sets per week the individual is currently training at 16 sets per week per body part um once we've nailed down that execution and that interset intensity and driving up the neurological connections and activation of all these high threshold motor units, et cetera, et cetera. Um, sometimes I find that we have to lower the volume even more than where we had sort of tentatively set it. Um, 
So that's a big factor, like you were saying, as, as setting volume requirements lower. Yeah, I, and I, I can give you, I can actually give you a really good real life example is I would say, and there's, there's more to that too. So also how strong a person is makes a difference. Like what yeah. kind of loads are they moving in the gym? Um, because your nervous system, like your nervous system capacity can adapt to an extent, right? But it's not going to continue to grow indefinitely like your skeletal muscle, you know, like it's just not. So what's somebody like, what's the recovery capacity on someone that squats 500 pounds for reps versus somebody that squats 185 for reps? It's going to be different. You know, mm. it's, it's, it's not going to be the same. It's, it's going to have a higher um, nervous system requirement. So, and where I'm going, like where I'm going with that is that when somebody is learning to execute a movement and recruit fi like proper fiber recruitment and actually train with sufficient intensity, um, they might find that they can't do as much, you know, they just can't do as many sets because now they're actually training at a higher, you know, I, you could use the word intensity or whatever, but they're actually doing more proper work, you know, working quote unquote working sets. And my example is that personally, I probably train with, I don't want to say less volume, but I, I know when I first started training years and years ago, I'm, I definitely trained with more volume. I definitely did more sets than I do now. Um, now, there, there are steps to that, though, because that we know we could talk about volume a little bit because we do know that volume is an important component for hypertrophy. And we also know through research, at least if you want to go the research route, we also know that you don't necessarily have to train max effort all the time. Okay, so it's like, how can we kind of how can we kind of blend that blend that together? So. I don't know how you treat it, but let's, we can give an example. Like if we have, let's say we get past that initial phase and we do the person they're recruiting, you know, fiber recruitment's good. Execution's good. They're giving us proper feedback. Okay. They, they're ready to progressively overload. So how much, like, how do we determine how much of that we're going to put within a program? Are we going to put, because obviously like some movements are going to be a little more geared towards progressively overloading we can overload on a bicep curl sure but it's going to be a lot easier to overload on a squat you know because just the poundages are higher mm -hmm. so you know how much how much of that are we going to put within a program does it depend on because i get this question a lot like does it depend on does every single movement in the program like in a in a training block need to be geared towards that or should we have some of it geared towards progressively overloading and some of it geared towards accumulating volume, you know? So those are the kind of questions that I, that I most commonly get asked. And I imagine we're probably going to have somewhat of a similar answer. You want to kind of blend the two variables within the program. I still have you. Sorry, you just dipped out then repeat what you just yeah. Yeah, I just I just said, are do you typically like to try to blend a progressive overload focus and and then accumulate volume 
within a program like within the same day um like you know yeah so there's many ways this can be programmed um sorry i don't know if i put in then i think there's a lag time over here um okay so you often hear that phrase thrown around so I'll, i'll go in with this first that you know volume is the key driver of hypertrophy i wouldn't necessarily agree with that because the literature that we have showing that greater volume delisted greater hypertrophic stimuli were also under the guise of sufficient intensity so if anything intensity is the key driver of hypertrophy then we could get into the argument of how close to failure do you have to get again literature on both sides comparing no failure to complete failure in both untrained and trained individuals and there's a bag practically speaking the greatest so if we take away from the research and just look anecdotally the biggest people i know trained to failure um i i tend to find value beyond um just high threshold motor unit recruitment or accruing more effective reps you sometimes see it called so reps close to failure by training to failure by also just developing the skill of being able to lock into execution of higher intensities and then ultimately being able to accrue more reps over time um so generally i will program things mostly in the you know one rep left in the tank to complete concentric failure and then sometimes forced reps um depending on the individual but most of my sets will be okay this is just a failure and whether or not we progressively overload that as a focus will come down to many things uh such as the client's adherence because ultimately that's the most important thing do they even want to do this training program if they don't they're not going to do it to the best of their ability and they're going to get shit results anyway um some people just love log booking everything i'm one of those people so yes we would primarily focus on mechanical tension overload session to session um be it in whatever rep range i think the literature is fairly clear on every rep from five to 50 as long as it's done with sufficient intensity pretty much resulting in the same metabolic tensile outcome i'm sorry mechanical tensile outcome whether metabolic tension and cell swelling has got enough to do with it is i think still out for debate um but we are primarily looking at mechanical tension overload so yes you'll have to do more over time does that have to be with every movement or can it be relatively instinctive? I think both are good. You know, like fortitude training is a combination of the both. That's a good example. Um, Dr. Scott uses his uh, pump sets where you don't log with them. They're just simply for creating as much metabolic tension as possible. Then there's other programs that will have single joint um, movements that are all based around still progressively overloading, just potentially in higher rep ranges with different exercise selection, etc. Um, I, I don't think it's overly important. I base it more on adherence as long as there is some focus on logbook and progression session to session, whether that be just your main multi-joint movements or the smaller pump type work of single joint metabolic sort of base work. Ultimately your adherence. However, I would kind of guess that if you can absolutely do more of everything over time, that's going to benefit you. Yeah. Yeah. You're going <clears> to <throat> inevitably, you're going to progressively overload on the movements that you, that you like yeah. probably most likely. Now that's maybe that's bad or good. I, I mean, it could be bad. It could be good. It can be bad in the sense that people don't put as much effort into the stuff that they're not very good at, which isn't a good thing necessarily. Um, 
I mean, if, if, you, if you're good at a bench press and you like to bench press, you're probably going to get better at bench press, you know? Yes. So, but that, which is okay, but that's not good if you're bad at a, I don't know, barbell row and your back sucks and you never try. You know what I mean? Like, you're just like, oh, I don't like this. So I'm not going to try very hard. Well, that's great, but you're probably not going to grow that body part very well. You know, so <clears throat> yeah, I mean, you have to, you have to kind of figure out like how, what do you enjoy? Um, and that could be part of that could be the, the program as a whole, like how it's designed, how it flows. And part of that could just be movement selection, you know, um, <clears throat> within a program. And I mean, I know my more advanced clients that have that I'm pretty confident that they're going to adhere, like they're going to put effort, the sufficient effort in the program. I will, I'll talk to them and I'll give them a little bit of leeway on movement selection within like that body part. Like, I, I mean, I can say if they're going to, we're trying to hit a certain body part and they want to swap out because they have a machine in their gym that they like, or they have a different setup that they like, or a different bar that they have available to them or something. I'm perfectly fine with doing that. If they're going to enjoy that more, because that probably means they're going to get better results. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there yeah. are definitely movements within exercise selection that are superior to others. Like I could make a pretty good argument that let's say reverse banding your, uh, a bench press as compared to just benching where you're going to have a great, load of drop off in the the shortened position of the pec is is you know that's a poor choice if hypertrophy is your goal but if you absolutely can't stand setting up a daisy chain and a band and it puts you off and puts you in a bad mood it's going to swing the other way and you're going to get a better result off of just doing the press right for sure yeah i mean you can because if you want to if you want to hook someone up to, you know, you have someone in the lab and you want to see what kind of fiber recruitment you get on a movement. We could argue that all day. We could say this, this angle of your elbow and this, you know, this much contract, like this much contraction on your bicep curl is going to be superior. But at the same time, if you like doing a bicep curl with a camber bar versus a dumbbell, then you're probably going to get better at a camber bar, you know? So, I mean, it's just, kind of give and take. And then of course, like equipment availability. I mean, that's another one, of course, like, you know, what do people have available? Um, but yeah, uh, going back to, <clears throat> going back to sufficient intensity, I think that's a cool one to talk about a little bit because we know, we do know now that you don't have to take everything to failure. We know that, but we also know like you, you mentioned just simple correlation between some of the biggest people, you know, probably take a lot of sets. They're working sets to failure. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there's an obvious correlation there, but I think the problem lies in that. Let's say sufficient intensity is a, we'll say it's a six out of 10 on a scale of complete mechanical failure. You cannot move the weight anymore. All right. Mm -hmm. Let's say it's a six out of 10. The problem is that people don't know what a 10 out of 10 is. Mm -hmm. So, so the, the, the issue is that their six out of 10 is really just a four out of 10. You know, yeah. it's, it's that 
in order to use any kind of RPE scale or reps and reserve scale, you have to know what zero reps and reserve feels like. Yes. You know, like, like you have to literally know what complete mechanical failure where your nervous system will not fire. There's no ATP, whatever it is, you cannot move the bar anymore. Like, and, and, and that's easier to do on certain things. Like it's going to be easy to figure out what, what is your mechanical failure on a, I don't know, like a five rep bench press. It's going to be easy. Why is it going to be easy? Because you're not going to be able to push the bar up anymore. Mm. You know, that's, that's easy, but it's going to be harder to find that on a, maybe a little bit slightly higher rep range or like a movement that allows that requires more mental fortitude. It's going to be a little bit harder to find that because nine times out of 10, somebody's going to stop because they're so uncomfortable, mm. not because the bar stopped moving. Mm. You know what I mean? So like, and, and you can, you can argue too, do we need to go to me complete mechanical failure or should we stop when bar speed slows down? Like, I think that's kind of a cool, that's kind of a cool debate too. Um, because I will use that within programs sometimes like where I'll use something like, uh, I don't know what you want to call them, continuous reps where if your bar speed, because here's the thing, like uh, if you, if you squat, like I squatted today. All right. So I did my top set was supposed to be in the six to eight rep range. Well, I could probably, I got five and then I did the six rep which I got five last week. I wanted to beat it. So I got six pretty cleanly, but my sixth one was a grind. Like it slowed way down and I was, and my fifth and my sixth rep, like I was shaking, you know, really bad. Mm. And could I have done seven? Probably. Like I probably legitimately could have stood there for a good five seconds and taken a couple deep breaths and literally like forced myself to do that seventh rep. But at that point, like, am I doing myself any more good or am I just like completely annihilating my nervous system? And am I getting any kind of contractile, you know, advantage? Not really. I probably wouldn't have felt much. Yeah. At that point. This is my sort of issue with those staggered sets. It almost becomes a rest pause. Like, yes, you may accrue one or two more, um, effective reps. If we're going to call them that, if we're going to use that phrase. However, Every time you go for another one of those reps and you pause, you are slapping your nervous system, especially on something like a large multi-joint movement with a ton of axial loading like a squat. I don't tend to prescribe things like that for the most part. No, and it's – and again, that issue is going to become worse when you're running into someone that's training with really heavy loads. Mm-hmm. And, but at the same time, it can be an issue with people that train with light loads too, because I see this ridiculous shit where, especially in females, where females tend to have like a, a greater ability to tolerate the metabolic waste and the, you know, and like, um, <clears throat> push through that burn, I guess, if you will. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's a biological thing. That's literally just females have that. They have a shorter recovery ability between sets as well. That's yeah. just how they are. So <clears throat> I mentioned that because what I see happen is 
if they're training with a lighter load, they'll end up like they'll squat 135 and they can stop at the top for two seconds and take a breath and they can literally fucking squat that weight all goddamn day long until we take the bar away from them. Yeah, yeah. Like, come on. It's not at that point. Yeah. You're just doing like a giant cluster set forever <laughs> or a rest pause or whatever, you know, whatever you want to call mm -hmm. it. So, yeah, you got to figure out like some of that's <clears throat> movement selection and rep range selection too. You got to figure out like where, where your limit is. I know I have a bad habit of that. Like I could, it's fun too. Like I, I kind of enjoy that training. Like I could rack pull. Let's do a rack pull. For example, if I'm doing anything over eight reps, I could fucking force myself to pull 20 if I really wanted to like just continue to just convulse and pull it until my nervous system is so fucked that I can't train for a week. You know, like you can make yourself do it if you are that type of person, but there's literally no advantage to that at all. Mm -hmm. So, um, so for me, what I like to do, if, if just for myself personally or somebody that, that is, that does have that, um, that ability, I guess, to train to, with that type of intensity on those type of movements, I'm probably going to air towards a slightly lower rep rate. Yeah. And the reason is because I know they're going to fail and I know they will not be able to move the weight anymore. Um, so that's intentional. And that's just so they stop fucking doing reps and they don't just sit there and rest positive forever. Um, so I do that with myself. Like I, I, I like to do every once in a while, I'll throw in a higher rep set of squats, but I know if, like if I start getting in the 15 to 20 rep range, I'll just squat until I can't breathe anymore. And yeah, it's just like, it's like a fucking miserable, I could sit there and I can force myself to do a couple more, but I'll just, I'll feel so bad and I can't even train after that. I think this is the issue I see with a lot of like higher rep work. People tend to either get bored before they reach that necessary sort of area under the curve to relative distance from failure or on a movement like squats, their aerobic capacity simply isn't great enough to support, uh, you know, skeletal muscle failure before their sort of just ability to carry oxygen dies. Yeah, I don't, it, yeah. So is at that point, is it just like a, is it an ego thing or is it like a just kind of want to see what they can do thing? Like I get it. I get it. I get the training for a lot of us, not a lot of us. Some of us, you know, training is one of those things where it is kind of a release. You want to see what kind of punishment you can dish out. I get it. I understand, but um, you want to find ways to mitigate that damage. So maybe like I said, training in that lower rep range can be a way that you will fail and you cannot just keep going forever um and i know you and i have talked about it like i'm a big visualization person when i train like visualizing what i'm gonna do on this set like and i know for me i don't know and i imagine because we've talked about it before and kind of the way we view training is i know that if it's a higher rep set if let's if it's 15 or more and I say, all right, I'm going to do 20. Like I have 20 in my head. I'm going to get 20. Yeah. I'm 
I'm going to do 20 reps. Like I'm not either I'm going to do 20 or I'm going to die. Yeah. Like it, you know what I mean? So, and, and obviously like that, it's not effective at that point. Like I, like I said, I'm not, yeah, maybe I am, I'm breaking down a little more, fi- you know, a little more fiber recruitment. Um, I'm, but again, the CNS damage is just immense. And, um, I, you know, I don't know, I don't know if that is, at least in my experience, if what is more common, what limits people's ability to train effectively, whether it's nervous system or actual muscle recovery. But I feel that in most people, it's probably CNS related. Um, And it's not just from training. It's not just because they train so intensely. It's also because of all the the cumulative stress load of their life and everything else going on Um, or poor sleep, um, you know, or just too much sympathetic drive for whatever reason all the time. Um, I know that's my, that's always been my biggest issue. I've gotten a lot better at it is that I could have everything right. I could, I could sleep eight hours, nine hours and do, you know, my nutrition's perfect. Um, all that stuff's perfect. But unless I manage my total stress load, um, I just don't have the best nervous system. Anyhow, like I, I could get to where I would. And if I trained hard enough, I could maybe train twice a week, you know? So I don't know. What do you see? Do you think, what do you think is the limiting factor? Do you think it's, um, I think a point to note there is where we start to edge into the trade-off between execution and just forcing like progressive overload. So as load goes up, you are just making your execution worse and that snowballs over time. I would generally rather see someone allow the adaptation to set in before they start to potentiate the weights or reps up rather than do some really sloppy movement pattern and you know because that's multi one you don't really want to create the motor um neurological pathways to lift in a poorly executed way and twofold it's just not going to be effective to introduce reactive forces or any inertia and just shit like that you know yeah it's yeah you can again will like willing yourself to do it or forcing yourself to do it it's it's just not really advantageous so so yeah you can you can modify movement selection or um modify reps rep range or you can do things like bar speed like i said if you're if you're slow if your bar speed's slow and your last two reps are just like brutally slow maybe you should have stopped type of thing um so yeah there's a lot of little ways that you can modify that but that is, I think that that is probably only relevant to a certain population because I don't even think a lot of people um, even train hard enough for that to even be relevant. Yeah, that's true. I think that's probably true. Yeah, you realize how, you know, when you, I'm sure you've had this where a client says, hey, I'm doing the program, but it's really easy. And you're like, no, right. not easy. You know, get those get those videos over to me, and you're like, "Oh, I see why it's easy, because <laughs> because you're right. not doing it very hard." Yeah, you see, so that's that's kind of my beef with um, like I, I like using 
I'm not against using an RPE or a reps and reserve type of scheme or, or some kind of cue because I want people to know like how, how many reps am I supposed to do on the set? How hard is it supposed to be? Like I, I have to tell them somehow, right? Like mm -hmm. how, what it's supposed to accomplish. But the problem is, is like one rep, one rep in reserve. Like if dude, if you're doing one rep in reserve, that's a really freaking hard set. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that's really hard. Um, if it's a if it's a compound or movement or any kind of movement that has any kind of reasonable load to it, outside of like a one rep reserve on like a tricep press down, that's probably not gonna kill you. But if I'm doing one rep in reserve on a squat or one rep reserve on uh, like some kind of pulling movement or anything with any kind of decent load, that's a really tough set. So yeah, yeah I think when you say stop short of failure. <laughs> Or, or do a nine out of ten. That the problem is, it's, they're just not doing that. So, yeah, I, I know if I'm programming, that's a that's an issue I run into commonly. So, like you said, seeing a video of it, or um, you can do other things. I mean, like I've intentionally programmed training differently for people. Um, like I've literally had programming that I know that the person just isn't training as hard as I want them to. And I, and I can't seem to get that message through to them, even if I look at videos or whatever. So I just, I just program more. Yeah. Because why not? Because at that point <laughs> I'm, I'm, I just need to add more volume into the program to make it effective because they're just not training hard enough. Mm -hmm. so I'll do it you know hey sometimes like I know as a coach we always want to set things up in an optimally but we also have to work with what we're given that's at times yeah and some of it yeah and some of that's just psychological you know we have to kind of play into what the client gives us sometimes um yeah, yeah. And that's right back to the adherence thing again you know it's easy for a coach to say this is how I want you to do it and then you just expect them to do it, but that's not efficient coaching, is it? No, it's not. I mean, you can, right. And that's why I said at the beginning, um, things like there's person's, um, schedule or, or just recovery ability or whatever. I mean, there's little things like, and this isn't necessarily training related, but I see stupid little examples all the time. I want you to get up in the morning and I want you to do, you know, I want you to take growth hormone. I want you to take your hem by and mobilize fatty acids. I want you to do fasting cardio. Okay. But I already get up at 3am to go to work and I don't get that much sleep. And then the reply is, I don't care. Suck it up and do it. Yeah. That's silly. You know, it's like, there are cases for, for you know, just shit. like. Yeah. There are cases where a client might sandbag and you have to be like, come on, man. But there are definitely cases yeah. where you have to watch, like because yeah, like you say, some people's nervous system is like shit. Like compared to the past, my nervous system's dreadful. Um, like, compared to what it used to be. <laughs> oh yeah, man. Yeah. I can't. I can't go more than you know five weeks at a stretch of pushing the training cycle before my nervous system. In the past, I could go for weeks and weeks and weeks and progress and progress. These days, 
you know, both my volume capabilities and just my general ability to extend the length of the mesocycle are dreadful. But I'm also about five times as strong as I used to be. So it's just like you were saying. And, and right. Everybody's going to be individual. Like, you know, Luke Hoffman, I was looking, he showed me his aura ring data in person when I saw him not long ago, and I nearly fell off my chair. He hadn't seen a HRV under 100 in months. I haven't seen a HRV over 30, even after a full week off training and doing nothing. So, you know, there are just great variabilities in people's nervous system capabilities. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, actually, <laughs> this isn't necessarily the person that I would quote that often, but it was a decent podcast. Did you hear the, uh, did you happen to catch the muscle intelligence podcast that Ben Pakulski had with the guy that had studied HRV? I can't remember its fucking name. No, but I'd like to. Uh, I, I, don't even, I only heard don't the one even, got on there. Well, Ben didn't talk that much in that one, so that's kind of why I liked it. <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, not that I, I don't have any problem with Ben. I don't care. But I don't really fucking care, to be honest. But um, he, uh, he had some doctor on, and basically his area of study was heart rate variability. And um, it was really neat. It was a really cool podcast because he brought up, he, he essentially talked about how it wasn't cut and dry. And he talked about practical application within athletes and different um, populations of athletes, like, you know, an endurance athlete versus a, somebody that's strength-based athlete, a bodybuilder or a powerlifter and, you know, whatever. And then he also talked about um, balance within the, you know, autonomic nervous system and how there are some things in there that are deceiving as well. He brought there actually the one example that was really cool that I experienced myself um, was that he called it and he had a term for it. So I, I called it adrenal insufficiency. You know, when I had my cortisol was pretty much nothing. Yeah. Okay. He actually called it in which this, I guess would be the same thing. He actually called it parasympathetic overtraining. Oh, meaning, yeah. Yeah. So uh, meaning essentially, what you do is you've been in a sympathetic state for so long that your body's compensating by your adrenal gland shut down. You're not producing neurotransmitters sufficiently, you know, cortisol, epinephrine, all of these things. And your body has basically locked you down into an extreme parasympathetic state where you're basically a blob all the time and you have no energy mm. because what it's attempting to do is it's attempting to make you not want to do anything because you don't have, you know, you're so overtrained. Mm. And that's really neat because that actually corresponds well. That actually goes right along with someone that's extremely overtrained would typically have high cortisol, right? And high production of neurotransmitters and be very sympathetically driven. Like if you were to look at an aura ring, for example, yeah, you know, you would see what high resting heart rate, right? Probably low, low heart rate variability on their aura ring. Yeah. Whereas if you have someone that is, they're so overtrained or, or they've been sympathetically driven for so long that they're be past that point. So like my resting heart rate and my blood pressure when I was in that state was actually super low. Um, you actually have, 
in imbalance, you'll actually see very high potassium on, not very high, but you'll see higher potassium. Like if you were to have a, uh, a uh, complete metabolic panel pulled on your blood work, you would see higher potassium and a lower sodium concentration. And it'll actually affect your aldosterone and it'll cause you to be basically like in this like super really down-regulated state where you're just super tired, your blood pressure drops, your heart rate drops, everything drops because your body is just attempting to preserve as much energy as possible. And uh, I'd never heard it called parasympathetic overtraining, but I experienced it. And uh, that, yeah, it was, it was just really cool to hear him talk about it. It's just pretty interesting. This is speaking to me a bit here. I've, all, I've always been hyperkalemic on blood work and my, my HRV is always really low. So that's something that I look at on labs. I'll look at, um, it's not realistic. Like obviously it's a lot easier to look at something like HRV and resting heart rate and follow, you know, follow by a feedback that way versus have someone go get labs and look at their potassium levels. <laughs> mm. But, but I, I, I will look at, I will look at that on labs. Like if I start to notice that somebody is, we're noticing these signs of, where they're getting very overtrained or they're at least exhibiting those symptoms in their biofeedback. And then we're having lab work done. I would typically notice that their uh, serum potassium levels would be higher. And then their um, they might show some signs like uh, skewed white blood cell count. Mm -hmm. So they're having, you know, they're having some kind of immune response where, because their body's so downregulated and overtrained. Um, my white blood cells, uh, normally got very low. They got very, they would get low to where they would actually be out of range on the test. So that's, that's what I would normally see. But, you know, but again, like, I don't know, I don't know how relevant that is to a lot of people. I don't think a lot of people get overtrained to that extreme to where they would ever even have to worry about that. At least I hope it's not common. Like normally as a coach, if we're working with a client, we're hopefully going to be able to catch it before it gets that bad. Um, but yeah, it was interesting. I don't know if, if you haven't heard the podcast, go check it out. I don't remember. I don't know how, how recent it was, but I'm sure if you scroll through his podcast, you'll find it. Um, it was a really good one. Yeah. I just wrote a down note over here. I'm going to check that out tomorrow. Yeah. I just popped it on when I was working and he made some pretty good points. Um, he just made me think a little bit in terms of how I remember free, um, which one of the other cool points was in this, this makes so much sense. And I, I, I didn't really never thought of it this way, but you know, he expresses how a, a, a healthy autonomic nervous system you want your autonomic nervous system to be able to have a massive sympathetic response when you train, because that's going to give you the best training session mm. and a healthy, a healthy autonomic nervous system will be able to do that. But that healthy system is also able to produce a massive parasympathetic response mm. when it's necessary as well. So it should be essentially what you should see in a healthy ANS is it should be able to push itself really high on both ends of that spectrum yeah and that 
and that was that was a cool way to think about it and that makes sense because it that basically just means that its ability to do its job on both ends is very good you know so um yeah it's a good one i mean even the people listening to this show if you guys want to check it out that'd be a good one to uh check out if you're interested in in hrv um i've been pushing tons of people to get aura rings or some kind of like I don't know if you've seen, um, and we're getting slightly off track of the training, but I don't know if you've seen, there's a couple other rings coming out that are kind of like, that are kind of similar, but I don't know how good they are. Yeah. Um, I just, I mean, the algorithms that the aura uses and the frequency of updates that they need to make and the specificity behind the design, I just don't know how something could be recreated cheaply, you know? Right. Yeah, I don't, I'm not really sure, but it's, uh, it's not a bad, really for the price though, it's not bad if you consider the cost of a lot of the fitness trackers that like the watches and things that you wear. I mean, they're, they're very expensive sometimes. Yeah. So, but yeah. Um, yeah. So we covered, I mean, we covered quite a few of the variables. I mean, adherence, um, we covered in terms of how to apply intensity, uh, how to how to view overload, um, how it you know how it may differ between an advanced versus a novice trainee or, or like somebody that uses lighter loads versus somebody that uses heavier loads. Uh, but I think a good takeaway message too, and you alluded to this, is just trying to like actually learn how to one execute movements properly, two try to actually find like real true mechanical failure so you can gauge the scale properly. Um, those, if you can, if you could do those two things and you're able to provide just good feedback and an update, then you're going to have, you're going to be pretty successful at programming. I would think. Yeah, I agree. I completely agree. Yeah. So Beyond that, I don't know. I don't know. If, was there anything else you wanted to touch on? Well, I could talk forever on it, but I think, I, I think that's pretty informative. And I think it gives people listening a lot to think about with their own programming that maybe they could follow up with more specific questions, throw some context, and then we can dig in um, in the future. That might be cool. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. We could, it, next Q&A, I guess, if you guys have any questions about, setting up training programming of course feel free to ask um we have next couple weeks we have a couple good podcasts well by the time this comes out they'll have already heard them probably because we have we have a supplement the supplement industry one with ben and then did you get a chance to listen to the episode i did with april i did it's awesome people are gonna love it dude i were you were you surprised by some I, of it? I was surprised. Are you talking about the style of training programming? I, I was surprised, but but also, I was actually very impressed with how intuitive she was naturally. She wasn't that yeah. she was. It wasn't that she was formally educated, like she had gone to school for this. Like she was just very intuitive mm-hmm. about. She was very in tune with her recovery ability, which mm-hmm. I was. I was impressed with because it was very unconventional, but it made good sense for her personally. Yeah. Um, 
and clearly it fucking works, <laughs> you know? I mean, shit, there's no really, you can't really deny effectiveness. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, but yeah, that'll be a good one to listen to considering so much of the, the power, so much of the strength programming now, there's like such a focus on like frequency component. For sure. It'll be. I love it. People will have already yeah. heard by now, which is a bit mad. Yeah. <laughs> to think yeah. about that. But yeah, for sure. Okay, dude. Um, I'm going to uh, go and eat. So we'll call it there. Thank you guys for listening as always. Please check out the sponsors in the show notes or if you're on social media in the uh, just post below. Um, please keep supporting me and Austin and the companies that support us in any which way you can. If you guys want to follow up with more questions, uh, with some more specifics from this one, then uh, please do let us know. Thank you for listening as always and we'll catch you in the next one, guys.